Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Herd Tell. So I'm not sure if you heard tell about this one or not, but you should have. Uh, French President Emmanuel Macron had to switch phones this week. You're wondering what that has to do with anything. Well, number one, if he had to switch phones because of a, using the word hack, that would be really bad. What we have overseas is a burgeoning story called the Pegasus scandal. Very complicated. I don't fully understand it. So we're going to turn to our friend John McCumber to try to walk us through this. But the bare bones of it is this. Watchdog groups and some journalists in France allegedly have a list of 50,000 names of world leaders, journalists, people of note. And there is an Israeli security forum called NSO that has software that they have marketed to countries. They say that this software was designed to hunt things online like terrorists, drug traffickers, bad folks, all these sorts of things. Now you have uh, watchdog groups like Amnesty International saying, no, people are using this to spy on journalists and citizens and other people like this. So what do we do with this big mess? Because now you have the governments of Morocco and India and Pakistan's wanting the UN to investigate. India is all over social media demanding everybody pay for this thing. Uh, Morocco got caught checking out uh, France. France is now changing out Macron's phone. It's a big ungodly mess. And let's all not ignore the fact that we now have a list of allegedly about a half dozen to a dozen Middle East countries that have just been found doing business with an Israeli security firm. Needless to say, there's a whole lot of mess and a whole lot of people that would like for that mess to not lead back to them. So we're going to turn to our friend John McCumber. He's been doing cybersecurity since it was even called cybersecurity. Uh, he's a former military officer, has a long history of not only working in that industry, but also teaching it, lecturing it. He's wrote a textbook about it. We're going to just ask him these questions and go through these news stories, because as the normal consumer of news, especially political and cultural news, these things might be a little bit out of our realm of understanding. But it's something that's going to happen more and more and more. It affects geopolitics. It affects culture. It affects everything. So we need to understand it better. So today on Herd Tell, we're going to turn down the noise overseas because the news in America isn't really covering it that much over the Pegasus incident. What do we do with cybersecurity overseas? And our friend John McCumber is going to explain to us how the words like hack just don't cut it when it comes to the information we need to cut through the noise and understand the times we're living in. That's what we're going to do today on Herdtel right after this. Once again, turn to our friend John McCumber. He's been a cybersecurity expert since before they even called it that. I'm not calling him old. I'm just saying he's experienced. John, how are you, my friend? 
I'm doing really well. And it reminds me of a saying, what was it, Oscar Wilde that said, experience is what most men call their mistakes. So, yes, I'm experienced. Yes, he was well known for some mistakes. I didn't pay great attention to Mrs. Nash's <laughs> literature class, but uh, he did have some mistakes to his record as I were And his issues. <laughs> trying to talk some cybersecurity and you throw Oscar Wilde at me right off the bat. So we're off to a running start. The reason we wanted you is because of your expertise. So turn to you and your cybersecurity expertise on this Pegasus story. We have this story out, uh, this list of 50,000 names of journalists and world leaders. We have Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, who's having to swap out his phone now. We have Moroccan intelligence involved. We have an Israeli firm software. We have India's upset. We have about a dozen Middle East countries involved. This is a mess of a story, John. Uh, It's really complicated. This seems really, really crazy. So help us kind of break down this Pegasus story, my friend. Well, actually, it's not a crazy story at all. Uh, For those of us in the cybersecurity industry, uh, Israel is is a center uh, of a lot of research development in uh, cybersecurity technology. Uh, Checkpoints, you've heard of checkpoint firewalls back in the day. Those those originated in Israel. A lot of uh, early research and technology uh, comes from Israel. So... Uh, when, when these kind of issues come up and they say Israeli company, it certainly doesn't surprise me or any of my colleagues in cybersecurity because we've worked with Israeli companies and Israeli technology for decades. Uh, they have very strong research uh, in cybersecurity and they've got a strong cadre of uh, the IDF uh, and Mossad. When these technologies grow up uh, and are nurtured in the Israeli uh, community, uh, again, that's, that shouldn't be surprising to anybody. What this software does is intriguing. But let's start right there, though. What does this thing do? Because the way this story became a story is it came out of uh, some reporting out of France, some watchdog groups uh, claim that they have this list of 50,000 names that came from the NSO group. They claim that it was hacked out of their servers. This is all alleged, of course. Uh, and then Emmanuel yeah. Macron's name got involved, which turns out it was Moroccan, and it's a big mess. But what what does what's the actual? I'm going to use a term you hate here, but then you can explain to people why you hate it. But hack? Why is this Pegasus hack? What does this software actually do? I hate it. Uh, certainly, let's let's blow up a couple of words that that were used here. One hack, and I'll go through that in a minute. And the other is unique. Uh, the word unique means one of a kind. It means you know there, there's nothing, no other. And and I wouldn't call this software unique in any sense of the word. This all goes back, you know. Again, I'm going to go back to my history here on this. Uh, early, some of the early technology in cybersecurity was developed originally uh, for allowing system administrators. Uh, system operators and others to be able to effectively uh, find problems in their network environment and to their connections, debug these problems, resolve issues. My, one of my favorite names on one of these, again, this is stepping back to the 90s. It was called, it, it was released, and I'll have to look at the date. I don't have it in front of me, but it was called Satan. And of course, that got everybody's attention. There's this software called Satan. And it, called, it was a systems analysis testing or system analysis and network uh, testing for available networks or something. It had a, it, it had a very uh, innocuous acronym, but it, it, uh, it, it came out as Satan. And, and so it was a system analysis tool, but then it was co-opted and it was able to be used against unsuspecting targets. I mean, it's one thing for you to debug and, and look for problems on networks and other things when it's your network. But guess what? That same software, the same capabilities, let's just use that term, 
those same capabilities that allow you to do this on your network might be able to allow you to do it on somebody else's network. So again, the evolution uh, of a lot of, uh, of surveillance uh, and others has come through cybersecurity, what has been called cybersecurity research. And a lot of these began life as simple tools used by system administrators and others. Now the phone technology has changed, you know, so they use, uh, you know, we use encryption in, in telephone communications and others. So the way we used to surveil uh, things like landlines and, and the switch network uh, for telephones has evolved. So what we see here is a company that had a tool set that was used within the telecommunications industry to remotely uh, be able to um, look for problems and resolve problems in uh, with cellular telephones. And guess what? Now we're using it for uh, uh, surveillance and other capabilities. And because you could put it on somebody's cell phone without their knowledge. The way this story is being pitched to us is, and again, this is all allegedly, but uh, they are saying that they got this list from the NSO servers. Uh, I'm going to use that word you don't like, hacked. I yeah. know you get upset. Uh, they said they got them off of these servers in Cyprus. This is what is being yep. reported from NSO Group. Now, the spokesman for NSO Group, and I'm going to quote the BBC News article on this uh, at bbc.com, said, quote, Firstly, we don't have servers in Cyprus, and secondly, we don't have any data of our customers in our possession. And more than that, the customers are not related to each other as each customer is separate, so there should not be a list like this at all anywhere. It's an insane number, the spokesman continues. Our customer have an average of 100 targets a year. Since the beginning of the company, we didn't have 50,000 targets total. So that's what NSO Group's saying. We have France and Morocco and other countries saying they're going to investigate this. Saudi Arabia's involved. The Indian government is all upset and all over social media demanding heads on this. This sounds like someone or a bunch of someones or maybe everyone, John, is playing a whole lot of CYA here. So to your learned ear, my friend, after doing this for a long time, where does it land with you? Where do you think we should start in trying to parse out this uh, big hot mess of a story? Well, usually, uh, again, using falling back on an old uh, canard, we can say when there's smoke, there's fire. Uh, you know, the small, you know, surveillance is the lifeblood of, of intelligence. And especially in this digital world, electronic surveillance is, is something that all intelligence services globally uh, look to and rely on. Uh, the ones that don't have in-house resources tend to outsource that. So what you're seeing is when you see these uh, issues come up and they list these countries, look at the names of these countries we're talking about here. Notice it, what's not listed as customers for NSO, okay? Who do you not see on their list of customers? The US government, the British government, the Chinese government. You see all these smaller companies that maybe don't have these in-house capabilities. So it's easier for them to go out and buy tools like the ones available from NSO, and use these tools in their data collection and surveillance uh, intelligence operations. So what you're seeing here is, again, what this what sounds like to my, in term you use learned ear, is that there is undoubtedly uh, a list of, of people that have been uh, surveilled uh, with these technologies and these capabilities. Is it all NSOs? Is it somebody else who likely they were being surveilled by countries that don't have a strong capability in developing and using their own tool sets? 
So, you know, usually the larger uh, and, and more sophisticated intelligence collection organizations use their own stuff. We have a lot of layers to this story. Uh, we have France and Morocco. Of course, we understand France's centuries of colonialism in North Africa. Yeah. So we have that layer of this. But let's be grown-ups about one of the elephants in the rooms of this story is NSO is an Israeli firm. And when you get half dozen to a dozen uh, Arabic Middle Eastern countries that are on an Israeli firm's client yep. list. You said the Israelis have some of the best stuff, and even though they're good friends of us here in America, a lot of those countries don't want it widely known they're doing business with them for a whole lot of reasons, correct? Absolutely. So this is a, an embarrassing situation for some of these uh, countries, I'm sure. Uh, again, these, uh, and, you know, you saw where NSO, uh, their leaders came out and they said, CEO comes out and says, you know, we only do business with countries that are going to be ethical and use it, you know, and, and the point is, you know, what he's really saying, what, what the words that aren't coming out that I suspect are behind that are, we deal with people who give us money. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, a lot looking to have a company be the arbiter of what is ethical or what's the appropriate use. You know, they're looking for, and, and again, they'll throw out the thing. We use this technology to look for, you know, creepy pedophiles, terrorists, and murderers. We don't do this, you know, obviously, uh, to, to look at, for example, President Macron's, uh, you know, his communications or surveil, you know, other international leaders and, and, and other organizations. Of course they do. Uh, you know, you'd be crazy not to think that. So the same tool that I could use to look for a pedophile uh, or, you know, somebody in child trafficking is the same tool and the same resource I can use if I'm just curious uh, on international issues or following up on leaders that uh, are making decisions that are going to affect my country or my businesses. Well, let's go back for just a second, though, because in America, we're, we, we kind of have a funneled worldview through our Americanism a little bit. We're used to having uh, all the gadgets and toys and capabilities as a sovereign nation. So to a lot of folks, it probably sounds crazy to them that a sovereign nation, even a smaller one, would be going to this firm that I guess anybody off the street, if they had the right amount of money, could go to them and get this exact same software. But the world you come from, the cybersecurity world, the intelligence world, the military world, uh, like you were saying earlier, this is not unheard of for these smaller countries to outsource to these companies. And that's kind of where some of this problem starts in the beginning, because they're trying to maybe punch above their weight a little bit. Exactly. And not only that, other countries don't have our sensibilities or our national infrastructure in what they, uh, you know, in, in picking winners and losers and other things, you know, even even uh, countries in Europe are, are more closely tied to their industries, their government and their industries are treated, if not, if they're not nationalized, they're treated like a national asset. And so what we're seeing here, of course, is, is this interplay that we have a, a line we draw in the United States. It's not that we don't cross it, not that there aren't all kinds of sketchy issues and, and areas where we really should you know, look, but we do have uh, a separation between government and industry. That separation doesn't exist in places like China. China, you know, will use their government to favor their industries in, in varied uh, significant ways. So what you're seeing, and that, and that exists in Europe, it exists in the Middle East and, and other places where they don't have quite that separation. Let's talk about that separation for a second, because even though, and not that America doesn't do it sometimes also, but especially in the water world, there's a lot of 
unworthy schemers. There's a lot of nefarious, bad faith actors. Uh, there's things from the past that keep ghosting up into these current events. The Khashoggi story, of all things, kind of reared its head back into this story that uh, some of the software might have been involved in that, where you have multiple countries and multiple entities and multiple things happen and you wind up with bodies. The founder of this NSO company can say, look, we designed this to go after terrorists and murderers and the really bad people in the world, but we understand that globally the technology is always getting updated in advances and moral and ethics are not getting always updated in advances. And it sure seems like this is an open-ended free-for-all that we're just going to be stuck with for the foreseeable future. Well, you know, that's exactly where we are right now. It, it's, it's certainly running ahead of the term you use is morals or ethics or whatever you want to claim. And we're seeing some significant uh, and dramatic uh, impacts in, in cyberspace, in technology. And we're it, it just highlight the issues that arise when a, uh, a political organization or a national entity, you know, that, that exercises nation state power uh, works closely with their industries to favor their industries and to get a, uh, an edge on other countries and other technologies and other industries. And so, you know, how do we police this? Well, you know, the UN is, is still arguing over, you know, the, how many angels dance on the head of a pin. They're not in a position to, to establish guidance and certainly not in a position to enforce it. So, uh, you know, one of the key concepts of any type of security, number one rule in all security is to protect thyself. And, and that is the number one rule. So we have a situation here and the French, for example, have to reevaluate, you know, how good are we at doing the defensive part of the security business? We have offensive capabilities that we're, you know, we're subject to. Uh, we're always, you know, the United States, we're always going to have uh, these offensive capabilities targeting our industries, our infrastructure, individuals and our intelligence community that, that it's just the nature of this industry of what's going on right now so we have to be able to protect ourselves what you see these other countries now have found this and again i we talked about it briefly before this and we talk about how much i dislike the hack word because it, it sounds like magic right well they hacked this or they hacked that or they you know that the point is they surreptitiously gathered this information or they illegally accessed it or they found a vulnerability in a network, you know, and then, so we have to be able to break down these events, not use the word hack. You know, when we're talking about a threat at, or somebody that's uh, out there uh, gathering information, we have to talk about tar age target, agent mechanism and intent. And so what's the target? What agent are they using? In this case, it might be a special piece of computer software what mechanism, and then what is the intent? Why are they gathering this and how are they going to use it? And so being able to have this kind of a discussion where we talk about all those elements rather than just use uh, a, a flippant uh, word like hack, which has a variety of meanings and it's, and, and it, you know, it's one of those words that unless you have a lot of context around it, you don't even know why you're using it. And that's why I don't, uh, it's not that I hate it. It's just, it's not accurate. It's not a good word to use. And so we want to be able to look at, uh, you know, the intent, what the targets, the mechanisms, and talk specifically about what these are and be able to have a, an intelligent conversation about what those risks look like. And speaking of vulnerabilities, there's news out of China now, uh, news items about how they have changing their policies now where uh, if you want to do business in China, you will reveal your 
vulnerabilities of your software and these sorts of things to the Chinese government ahead of time as the price of admission for doing business. We understand that China is not a good faith actor on the world stage. We know they're a tyrannical government. We have had our own issues here in America with them, with the uh, GAO, I'll use that word you hate again, hack. You mean the GAO exfiltration, data exfiltration. I know. All right, no problem. I'm just being specific. It was a data exfiltration. It wasn't Yeah, that, that too. I, I just remember getting the email and the letter saying that they got my information on it because I was on active duty at the time. I got a long, they got a lot of stuff on me. To the point, uh, China now, this is going to be their policy. They're going to have these vulnerabilities. We talked about how cybersecurity back in the beginning, you said it actually started out not being nefarious. It was trying to figure out ways to get into this information. What do you make of this going forward that this is now China's policy? Well, you know, we've been looking to do that here in the United States for about two decades. Uh, We have set up these, uh, you know, these what we call ISACs, Information Sharing and Analysis Centers. And we have them for retail. We have them for industrial community and others where we we thought it was going to be a great idea where everybody was just going to send over this information to the government going like, hey, look, we found these vulnerabilities in our software. Uh, We've had this incident take place in our industry. You know, here's what happened. And we're going to turn all that over to the government. The problem that we've had in doing that is, 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 you know, people say, well, there's a lot of technical problems with information sharing. My answer has always been there is absolutely no technical problems. You can set up a website, everybody dumps their information in. The thing is, there's a trust issue here. And there's uh, people, you know, are in a position, companies, they're not going to trust just turning this over uh, to a government. Uh, that, you know, without having an opportunity to fix these issues and, and other things. So what I think you're going to see is that it's going to force uh, these vendors, and and I'm going to use that term specifically, but it's going to force vendors to take a hard look at the systems and and endeavor to find these vulnerabilities and deal with them long before they're going to be reporting the Chinese government. We're talking about China. We're talking about Russia. People use the term, is Cold War a good analogy for this? Because we understand the Soviet Union, we defeated them in the Cold War and won the Cold War by economic means, by cultural means, with a big old healthy assist from good old-fashioned Soviet incompetence and the style of government they were trying to run. It seems like Russia is using cybersecurity to attack us culturally with disinformation and politics, and they use things like racial strife in their propaganda. China is obviously a big economic competitor, and now with this information, like you were just talking about, they have a way of seeing these vulnerabilities up front and things. Is the Cold War a good analogy for the geopolitical environment that we seem to be dealing with these cyber security issues in for you, or is that a bad analogy? No, I think we have, uh, I don't like using the term warfare because it's, you know, it, there's not a kinetic you know aspect to it as of now, uh, but you're. And long may that yeah, last. Yeah. Well, again, now, yeah, long may it last. So what we're seeing is a, uh, you know, a race, a technology race as, organizations within these company and countries and some countries support these it would be like uh if if we had for example and i'm just literally pulling these agencies if we use say the cia or the nsa uh to go get chinese plans for you know a nuclear plant for aircraft carrier whatever bring them back and hand those over to the electric boat works turn those over to you know bechtel turn them over to Raytheon and then work closely with Raytheon to, you know, clone these technologies and capabilities. We don't do that in this country. 
uh, you know, not, we, but China does. Uh, they will go out and, and use their intelligence apparatus to get information and work closely with their own industries to either clone, replicate, or somehow build off these, uh, this knowledge that they've gathered surreptitiously. Since you compare it to a race, then horse race of us, is America, we, are we ahead? Are we behind? Are we about even with the rest of the world when it comes to the competition of cybersecurity and where this is going in the future? Is America leading? Are we trailing or are we struggling to just keep up with everybody else right now? Well, that's a great question. And what you're seeing is there's, it's been a great leveling. I mean, look at a country the size of Israel. And look at the impact they're having in cybersecurity, and they've had for 20 years. Uh, you know, like I say I've, I've had the privilege of working with colleagues in, in Israel and companies in Israel over the many years, and, and it allows them to do that. Let's go back to even World War II. And before World War II, a country like Poland had incredible uh, cryptanalysis capabilities. Guess where Bletchley Park came from? After the, the Nazis invaded Poland, you know, the British were able to extract the Americans. We got a lot of these cryptanalysts and, and others out of Poland, uh, brought them and, and housed them at Bletchley Park and got, you know, and then, of course, you know, after the war, we still continue to move on everything. And we built uh, our national security apparatus around a lot of those capabilities. And they all began in Poland. And, and so you look at here we are again, we build a lot of technologies around capabilities coming out of Israel, uh, we've got cybersecurity. It's a great leveler, you know. It's 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 uh, you know we're large countries, small countries, and others. But if they have these incubators where they can uh, use the, the people out of their university, their research personnel, and others to build these capabilities, they can get way far ahead of even large and established companies uh, countries. On a slightly more relatable note, though, one of the real bonkers things I found in the story was the fact that they were having Emmanuel Macron, president of France, change out his phone again. What what's he doing with a phone? Like he has AIDS. We, we had, you know, we go to briefings, and this is fifteen twenty years ago. We'd go to the briefings, and you had a nice rack of plastic things out in the hallway, right. and your phone and devices went in that, and you went in, had your meeting, came back out, got your phone. What in the world are world leaders doing with phones still, or am I just naive? No, I think we're just uh, we're all caught up in this environment. We use these uh, uh, these have become multi-purpose tools for us. You know, one of the the the, the programs that I worked in years ago out of the Pentagon was a program called MLS, multi-level security. And I worked in this big, this is a big program at the Pentagon back in the day. And what they were trying to do is figure out the best way to separate, you know, here's, here's information in different classes. Here's unclassified information, what I'm having for lunch, you know, these kind of things, you know, uh, you know, where, you know, when I'm buying a new uniform, things like that. Well, then we have information on, you know, where we're shipping supplies and logistics and others that might be classified at, say, a secret level. And then you have operational things that are at the top secret level. And then you have things, what we call sources and methods that are at the SCI, especially compartment and information level. So you have these levels that we have, again, very crude system where we use secret, top secret, SCI, uh, confidential, uh, unofficial. So we have all this information. How do we separate all that? And how are we able to create pictures and be able to share information? You know, is a, uh, for example, a two and a half ton truck, is that classified? Well, no, I, I can see it there at Camp Swampy. It's across the road. There's a two and a half ton truck. If I've got that two and a half truck, ton truck slated 
to be shipped to a special place for military use, that might be classified secret. And then if there's a special electronics package inside that, uh, that, that two and a half ton truck that's used for intelligence gathering purpose, that may be SCI. So even though the term is, so is a two and a half ton truck classified? So answering these questions, these are huge policy problems. And we haven't to this day still haven't figured out how best to separate and be able to manage information in a way that 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 handles even the most crude labeling uh, of of these labels that we use. And we use it to evaluate how critical this information is. Again, it's a very crude measure that we use. Uh, and then at the SCI level, if you're familiar with how that works in, in, government, in, in, in the military and the government, they have a variety of these code words to separate even further on a need to know basis. Being able to help people take actionable information without disclosing these highly sensitive sources and methods and others, we're still working with that. We don't know. For the average person, John, like me, who doesn't know a lot about cybersecurity, but I have my buddy John that I can forward him a tweet and be like, explain this to me like I'm five years old. How does somebody go about discerning these sorts of things when they see a news story like Russia disinformation, when they see something like China changing their policies uh, about vulnerabilities? Something like this Pegasus story, which is wide ranging. It's a story that has so many layers and whichever layer you have as your entry point to the story really affects where you wind up thinking about the entire thing. Uh, how would you recommend just a normal person when they're digging into these issues, how they should perceive and discern this information? Well, that's that's a good way to look at it. Again, obviously, anytime you see that H word, your antenna's got to go up because it, it's hiding something. That word is, is used inappropriately and it's used to hide real information that you need to do. And the word and you mean H word, you mean yeah. hack. The word hack, anytime you see hack, that's a red flag. Absolutely. One, it shows whoever is using it probably doesn't really know what they're talking about. And, and I mean, you know, you see it on the Internet now, too, you know, 12 new kitchen hacks. You're like, what? And then you realize, oh, you know, it tells you how to use a, a you know, an air fryer or something like that. That's a hack now. So it's just it's 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 a word that had fallen out of favor in the mid 90s has come roaring back and is being blasted about. But and, and it's it's that's why. I, I'm adamant about it, is that it certainly makes it difficult to have an adult conversation about really difficult and sensitive issues like this Pegasus situation. So it, it implies that there's some magic somebody pulled or it's some, you know, some 20 something in a hoodie at a keyboard. It brings up all kinds of these images. And, and then we in the industry in cybersecurity do ourselves absolutely no favors because we like to use it as well. It sounds cool. We impress our family and friends. We make people think we've got some kind of special magical skills that, you know, if only they could dedicate themselves, you know, to, and have the level of curiosity and research skills we have, they could maybe aspire to this. So we need to talk about it. And again, this is a security problem. So anytime you see the word security, security is a tuple. There's three elements that create risk. It's risk management. It's a threat, a vulnerability, and either a mission or an asset. So the threat is foreign intelligence, foreign surveillance, right? Vulnerabilities are software in our phones that allow these threats to exploit what the assets, our information, or the missions we're trying to accomplish by exposing and making this data available to them when I want to keep it private or secret. So there's a, a tuple that we have to follow every time, threat, vulnerability, asset. 
and 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 asset can be a mission to that you're trying to accomplish. So it what's being compromised, who's the threat, what's the vulnerability? And in this Pegasus, this is a perfect example. You have a threat, foreign intelligence, you have a vulnerability, this Pegasus software, and then you have the target, and it could be President Macron. So this this allows you to now be able to look at what the issues are in a much more effective way than using either the word hack or security. So to try to put a bow on this Pegasus story, um, maybe more information comes out over the coming days. Um, seems like a lot of times with these sorts of stories, you get the big blast of information and then it just kind of dithers off into the either. Yep. Uh, whatever happens going forward, put your consultant hat on for a second. What's the story here? Is this a massive swerve to cover something up? Is it a whole bunch of people playing CYA? Is it a third of a hope so and a third of a want to and a third of a wish casting? What's what are you landing on this Pegasus story? Where do you think it's going to go and how do you think we should treat it as consumers of news and information? Well, this is a, you know, it's a PR issue. It's a lot of CYA for these companies that or I'm sorry, these countries that have leveraged this software to use it in ways that even even if you believe the CEO and I'm not saying we should discount what they say. Say you know, give them the best of intentions. But you have these these systems being exploited and used by these uh, by these uh, countries, and it's embarrassing for them. So you're going to see a lot of CYA, and then of course, as what we see is the evolution of cybersecurity, as vulnerabilities are disclosed. And this, and make no mistake, this software creates and in fact is a vulnerability in in the uh, telecommunications infrastructure. So. What they'll do is tools will be deployed and developed to be able to identify this software when it shows up, either block it or eliminate it. It treat it just like the old antivirus stuff. Remember back in the 90s, you get all these, oh, there's the, you know, this virus or that virus and everything else. And then, of course, you'd see the stock for McAfee and Symantec go through the roof. And then, of course, they'd come out with a new update for your antivirus, and then they'd take care of that. And, you know, six months later, there'd be some other virus. This is this is not dissimilar. The same kind of thing. There's going to be uh, safeguards developed around this. This technology will probably be, uh, you know, evolved and changed and put into some other kind of format or tool set. NSO will might maybe come some other company name and evolve, and, and the technology will evolve. So that's that's what you're seeing here. You know, it's it's a it's an exciting thing to talk about when these things uh, blow up and hit the you know hit the papers. Uh, but what you're seeing, this stuff goes on behind the scenes all the time. So to bring this down from the international level to more personal level, what do you see on the consumer side and the consumer level, the average person side uh, going forward with these issues with cybersecurity? It seems like we're maybe at a little bit of a technological plateau. People are pretty comfortable where we're at right now. Social media is maturing. The smartphones have been around for 15 years now or so. We, we seem to kind of be getting comfortable with technology. What do you see on the consumer side going forward as we try to deal with these uh, cybersecurity issues? Because they affect us individually too, not just these big companies and big scandals like we're seeing in the news. Well, what we see at the consumer level is, is you're seeing is that, you know, uh, people myself, uh, you, your family and others, we don't want to consciously be dealing with security issues. You know, they, they always say, you know, people are the weakest link in security and, and everything else. They, they do things in certain industries still, they fish you for, uh, there's a, companies I'm aware of that's, that, that sell phishing software and they supposedly train you to 
identify uh, fishes and others that would give you uh, malicious links and others. Uh, at the end of the day, people don't want to be conscious about security. You don't want to have to sit there and, and you know, scroll over the two line to see, you know, where is this coming? Is this really an Amazon email? Do I really have a $700 charge sit out there in email? You know, so do I click on this link? You're going to see more and more of that. It, you know, it, the virus definitions, 20 years ago, we'd all sit around and download virus definitions. Nobody likes doing that. So they've automated that process. So you're going to see more and more security, you know, relevant capabilities go away from the consumer. These are going to be embedded in these systems. And then, of course, we'll wait for them to find these vulnerabilities that you have in systems like uh, the software that NSO provides and others where you got to determine what your role is in, in that as well. So I, I really think the evolution is going to be away from the consumer in cybersecurity and being able to uh, install it, you know, have it built in instead of bolted on. He is John McCumber. I rely on him on all kinds of information. I love to read his writing. He's a valued colleague of mine. John, tell people where they can find your stuff and find your thoughts the way I get to so everybody can enjoy your expertise and point of view. Well, you're very kind. I'm uh, uh, retired now for the most part, and uh, I do write, I do research, and I do uh, have the opportunity to speak on occasion. Uh, I'm at John McCumber on Twitter, uh, but you'll see that in my Twitter feed, I'm mostly writing about architecture, koi fish, and uh, art, uh, some of my other interests. Uh, and uh, you can find some of my writings over at Ordinary Times online. And on that note, he is also a foundational member of the hashtag Twitter Supper Club group. He always has gourmet-looking food. Uh, being the gourmet world <laughs> traveler that you are, uh, that man eats good, so make sure you check that out as well. Uh, it's It's been a pandemic uh, opportunity for me to hone some other skills. So between having the pandemic and having retirement, it's been a fun hobby. The only thing to make this better is if we do it in person and do it over food. So maybe we'll do a live podcast or live stream with you and me and a bunch of food one of these days soon, my friend. Always a pleasure, Andrew. Thank you, sir. Talk soon. Since John brought it up, why don't we just ask Oscar Wilde what he thinks of all this? Of course, he's been dead for a long time, but curiously enough, he did write about some of these issues in his own way, not understanding what the Internet was, of course. He said, quote, The security of society lies in custom and unconscious instinct, and the basis of the stability of society as a healthy organism is the complete absence of any intelligence amongst its members. The great majority of people, being fully aware of this, rank themselves naturally on the side of that splendid system that elevates them to the dignity of machines and rages so wildly against the intrusion of the intellectual faculty into any question that concerns life that one is tempted to define man as a rational animal who always loses his temper when he is called upon to act in accordance with the dictates of reason. End quote. I guess there really isn't much new under the sun even if we've just got it online and made it into an international incident instead. There's still plenty of people raging and losing their temper when they're called to act to the dictates of reason. The problem we have in modern society, of course, is we just don't have that many people calling for the dictates of reasons at all. they just rather rage and lose their temper. Oscar Wilde may not have understood what the internet was going to be someday long after his death. He seemed to have a pretty good handle on how people function. And the internet is just one more way to interconnect people and governments of people. And that means all the problems of people. And so it goes. 
Uh, that'll do it for this edition of Herd Tell. Folks, we've been so thankful for you checking out this little program of ours. More great guests coming. We've actually got some folks scheduled out in advance because of certain things. Still going to have our friends like John, like M. Carpenter with Legal Stuff, John with Cybersecurity, uh, our friend Michael Siegel on Science. We're going to keep them in the rotation because these issues are going to continually come up as we talk about culture and politics. And we want to bring you knowledgeable guests that help turn down the noise of the news cycle and give you information you can actually use. That's what we try to do today. It's what we'll try to do tomorrow. It's what we'll always try to do. And we'll keep doing it as long as you keep listening. However you're listening, whether it's on iTunes, Spotify, the YouTube channel, please leave a comment. Make sure you leave a rating if they have that ability. If you'd share a link or a recommendation on your social media, that'd be great too. That's the best way people can find out that we are worth their time checking out. We think there's plenty of folks out there that want to hear and talk and discuss without all the yelling and fussing and caterwauling. Wherever you are around the world or across the street, we hope this finds you and yours well. And until we talk to you again, from all of us here at Herd Tell, thank you very much. Y'all be well. All the music on Herd Tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.